This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your ever-present host, Ray Harkins, hanging out with people in independent music, whether it's playing in bands, whether it's creating some other stuff in and around independent music. That's what we talk to. And Stacy Hilt is the guest this week. He is the uh, bassist for Coalesce. He also played in Casca Lottery, which are doing some shows coming up. I'm very excited about that. And they're doing some uh, reissues with uh, Run For Cover Records of all of their amazing, amazing records from the past. So, uh, yeah, dive into all that because this, uh, this conversation is more relevant than ever. And um, more on Stacy in a few minutes. You need to do two things for me. First of all, go to noecho.net, visit that website, get some cool content shoved into your eyes. I make that sound forcible. It's not shoved. It's just like you, you consume it. It's a website. But it covers a lot of stuff in punk and hardcore that, uh, yeah, just doesn't get covered. And you need to check that out because I think that's what this show does as well. So, yeah, noecho.net and visit rockabilly.com. They are great sponsors and I like I like them. I like them a lot. They sell so many pieces of band merch. You could probably find Casca Lottery stuff on there. You could probably find Cola stuff on there. You know, don't get mad at me if I recommend it and they don't have either of those bands. But they've got 500,000 items from so many other bands that you probably like as well. And I'm going to give you 15% off. Use the code PC100WORDSORLESS, typed out like the number, 100, words or less, and it gives you 15% off your order. Great customer service. I can't recommend this company enough. So dive in, rockabilia.com. Use the promo code PC100WORDSORLESS, and you will uh, enjoy the band merch that you order. And it's officially licensed too. That's a huge deal because the band gets paid. It's not just some crappy bootlegger, okay? So rockabilia.com, use the promo code. There you go. Um, Stacy, no, one moment, please. One moment, please. I have to uh, talk about uh, some fun stuff that's going to be coming up with Taken, right? We're going to be releasing an EP at the end of April. I will give you more details shortly, and we're probably going to be doing some shows in Southern California and the surrounding areas in late April. So keep your ears to the ground for that one. I'm excited to, uh, yeah, play some shows. It's fun. Uh, I sprained my ankle last week, and that sucks, and I am doing my best to heal from that. I was playing basketball, got a rebound, landed on a dude's foot, twisted my ankle. I was like, oh, man, I forgot how bad that hurts. And, uh, yeah, doing better, but, uh, you know, it always always sucks to get injured. And also, the thing that I take the most chagrin to when people are like, oh, man, you're old. You shouldn't be playing basketball. First of all, I'm 37 years old. I'm not that old. And it's a freak accident. It could have happened to anybody. And it just happened to land on someone's foot. You know, could happen to me when I was 16. Could happen to me when I was 15. But uh, yeah, I rolled an ankle. So there you go. Get off my lawn, young people. <laughs> Anyways, Stacy Hilt, uh, yeah, the bassist for Coalesce and the Casket Lottery. This actually, this interview transpired shortly after I interviewed Nate Ellis, who's the singer of Casket Lottery. And then he also played in Coalesce as well. And, um, yeah, Stacy hits me up on Facebook and is like, Hey man, if you want to have me on, I'd love to discuss some stuff. I was like, this is great. I, I obviously like both of your bands. So let's do this. And Stacy was a great hang, very pleasant conversation. So that's what we did.
Um, there's two distinct memories I have of you, even though like we've never, I don't think we've ever actually met, but like Seth Brown was a close friend and like, you know, I saw a casket lottery a million times. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. so like, I, I think we may have met in passing once at like a random show in thousand Oaks or something. But even before that, a distinct memory I have is seeing, uh, you know, you perform with coalesce at the showcase theater in Corona, um, when you were on tour with today is the day. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And it was, so I was like, I don't know, maybe 16, 17 at the time. And so, you know, heavy music was already a part of my life, but I, I liked you guys, but to be completely honest, there were many elements that I didn't understand about coalesce, like just as far as the, the technic, you know, the technical aspect of it, I was like, this is good, but like, you know, it's obviously not as moshy as all the other stuff that I like or whatever. Um, and, and I liked the visceralness of the live performance, but then also there were many elements that I was like, man, these guys are like different than a lot of other bands that I've seen before. And so I'm sure that that feedback has kind of passed to you in some respects where it's like, yeah, I like Coalesce, but like I didn't understand certain things that you guys did or certain records, not saying that was a bad thing, but just maybe I wasn't ready for that in at that point in my life. Um, have you gotten that sort of feedback before? Yeah, and I've got it from from fans, and I, I got it from my parents my whole life. They they never understood it either, but for different reasons. They they came from a a history of singer songwriters, and they didn't understand the screaming and bashing of instruments as as much. So uh, I always had to explain to them. But yeah, I got it. Um, from from me, I'm I'm not a, a student of music, so to speak. I, I'm self taught, and I've learned by ear and. Jess was definitely the, uh, the, the engineer and mastermind behind Coalesce, and, and Sean was the mastermind behind the vocal parts of Coalesce. And without those two, there would have never been a Coalesce. Uh, and, and Nathan Ellis has become the third part that can't be replaced. But as far as the other three go, I mean, that's basically it. There, there'll never be a Coalesce without Sean or Jess because they're basically the cogs that keep that, that, that whole machine moving. And as far as the angularity and, and, and the the dynamic aspects of coalesce. I, I never really, uh, I, I guess I never really understood how angular it was for me. It was just, I, I come from metal. I listen to Pantera and I listen to, you know, Napalm death and stuff like that. And for me, it was just kind of an offshoot of that. What I never really understood was the, uh, the hardcore aspects of it. When that kind of started coming into the coalesce, uh, framework, I'd always seen bands and heard bands in the hardcore genre, and, and they always seemed like they were kind of watered-down metal, if right. I, I guess I guess is what I could say. I mean, it was sure. the, the chuggy, open-E riff, uh, but at the same time, you can't deny what bands like Earth Crisis did with that open-E, chuggy riff. And then in the second that Carl comes in screaming street by street, block by block, uh, just watching kids just lose their mind, I mean, you can't deny that either. Oh yeah. Um, de- yeah, definitely. I mean, and that's, that's why it, you know, you, you guys definitely, you know, were, were always interesting from that perspective because you did, uh, you know, you were, whether or not you were comfortable either in the metal and or hardcore world, like you were able to exist in there either sonically, but maybe not aesthetically. And then vice versa in many respects where it was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, we don't look like your typical, you know, hardcore and or metal kid. Like we just look like, you know, a bunch of weird dudes from the Midwest. <laughs> yeah. And that's really, that's really what it was too. Cause, uh, in, in, in 94 leading up to 95, we had been talking to a, a rep from earache records in New York city 
uh, Lou DeCarolesse, and uh, and he actually become like an honorary fifth member of Coalesce. We used to just call him Lou DeCoalesce all the time because he was so so ingrained in our growth as a band and, and us getting known uh, with Earache Records and pretty much anywhere outside of the hardcore scene. Um, and I remember going to the Earache Records uh, label in New York City and we, we show up and I remember meeting a receptionist and she called up to uh, their floor and said, uh, there's a band here to see you. And that was our that was our first day in New York City, the first day of that 95 tour with Bloodlet and 108, or, yeah, Bloodlet and 108. And uh, she kind of chuckled because when you got up to their offices, you know, they were all all in black. They're they're you know considerably older than us, and they looked the part of working at Earache Records, where we pull we pull in and we're just as Midwest as you can get. We looked like we were 15 years old. I uh, Sean and I were the oldest. We were 19 at the time, but the rest of the guys were you know 17 and 18. So we show up in 95 to Earache Records and there's just these kids that walk in and they just start laughing because they cannot believe that music was coming out of those kids. Right. Because of what they told us. <laughs> right, right. Well, there, there, yeah, there definitely is that element of, um, I mean, especially when you're talking about dealing in extreme music, you would expect people to aesthetically match that vibe as well, where it's like, oh yeah, these are guys that are, you know, going to, you know, either have really long hair, crazy tattoos or oh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And you, you come in there just being like, Hey, what's up guys? <laughs> yeah. It, it was hilarious. It, we, we looked like a, a really bad, uh, nineties skate video, just right. a bunch of kids and, and shorts that were too big for us with, you know, uh, Jess and I at the time were Hari Krishna. So we both had shaved heads. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was just this weird juxtaposition, I guess. So you hear the music, you see us come in, and the two just do not fit together in any way. And so yeah, but I mean, in many respects, that I, I think ultimately, you know, made you and the band, you know, more approachable in many respects because it was like, oh, like yeah, you can have these sort of you can have this duality where it's like you can look yeah. one way, but you can act like another. Like I'll never forget one of the most impactful things that I, I saw was like, you know, Elliot, when they were touring off of us songs, like, you know, they would, and the, of course this is, you know, dating us and the fact that this existed before the internet, but like their whole, <laughs> their, their whole, their whole thing was the fact that they dressed up in, you know, black, like not slacks, but black pants and like, you know, a white, t-shirt or not a white t-shirt but like a white collared shirt with like a yeah, tie. white collar shirt with it, a black tie yeah, yeah. I, I remember they kind of had that 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 mormon missionary look to them right uh, back at back in the day for sure and and there, and there was that that kind of that kind of group to where you had those in that kind of style of music where they were the kind of the heavy emotional rock group and i hate to use the word emo and all this stuff but that's kind of where they were in that genre and and you always had the stylish ones over there and then you had us that were just some kids that were from the Midwest that looked unbathed that had no real look to ourselves other than we got dressed that day. Right. Yeah. We, we were able to, uh, attempt to dress to the style that we know, which is nothing at all. <laughs> just yeah, like, we, yeah. what, like you mean, said, what we've seen in skate videos. And, and, and there was a, there was a minute there where, where casket lottery entertained the idea of, uh, I don't want to say a dress code, but at least a style. And, and we, since we're so different in uh, in stature, to where you had Nathan Jr., who was you know a little over five foot tall, and then Nathan Ellis, who was a little just a little bit taller than him, and then I'm six foot four, almost six foot five, and it would just we always thought it was this weird look to have these. <laughs> I look like they're bad, uh, but no, this is weird. So right, absolutely. 
Um, so kind of you know, stepping back and focusing on you, um, were you always like, were you born and raised in Kansas City or where did you come up? Yeah, I, I was born and raised in Kansas City. I, I lived in the, uh, the Kansas City, Kansas, uh, Wyandotte County area for most of my life. Uh, I moved quite a bit as a kid, but never really left the Kansas City area. Um, this, uh, I was a kind of a, a middle class kid from uh, Wyandotte County. And, you know, I, as, a, as a kid, I never had dreams or, or aspirations to, to be a musician. I just I had leanings toward it due to my dad being a guitar player when he was kind of growing up, and he gave up his his dream of being a musician when I came into the picture, and so he spent most of his time as I was growing up living vicariously through me as as I adopted music. So that's how I got into music is because I was inspired by him. But you know, listening to music with him was a, a different a different thing. It was like the Mamas and the Papas and Jim Croce and kind of singer-songwriters, and he wasn't into the heavy music. He was into the more uh, mellow singer-songwriter stuff. So how I got into the metal aspect was uh, probably along the, the lines of I wanted to be a drummer, but he said it was too loud. So he decided to buy me a guitar, so I decided to play metal to, to teach him a lesson. Nice. And so are, are you an only child, or do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, I, I, have a, I have an older sister uh, and two brothers and a stepbrother. Oh, okay. Big family. Yeah, they came from a family of nine. So, and and that was an old immigrant family from from Germany. So, got it, got it. Um, yeah. And so, you know, once like once you started to like you say get into you know more music that didn't make sense to your parents, and you know you were kind mm-hmm. of you, you were being a little uh, contradictory to what your your dad was trying to yeah, know, yeah. Pl- play you. Um, did, was it met with derision? Was he just like, dude, what are you doing, Stacy? No, no, no. It, it was it was never like that. He he would always say, "I don't understand what you're doing, but I, I love that you're doing it." it. It was that kind of attitude to where he he was he never frowned upon it because he saw how much it moved me, and it was it was one of the few things that that did as a teenager, like that gave me focus. Um, I, I I I do I, I suffer from a little bit of depression and 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 uh, and uh, bipolar disorders, so. I, I never was medicated as a kid, and I always was able to use music as an outlet to kind of give me focus and kind of control the those aspects of my mentality. So that's he always saw that and saw that as a, as a good thing. So no, it, it was never frowned upon. Uh, my mom so much she didn't understand it. She came from a, a, a background where you basically raised your siblings and then um, just spent your life making sure that your children were raised properly. And she was, she was very devoted to her family and, and to her kids. And, and she never really made a life for herself. So she never understood it. She just understood. I don't know why you don't get a job. I don't know why you don't start a family, that type of thing. So there was always a little bit of a rub right there just because of, she didn't come from that, that, that world. Right. Oh so. it, yeah. That makes sense because you you're, you're, you're the mentality of being able to, you know, quote unquote, pursue your dreams or, you know, those sort of things yeah, like that just yeah. didn't culturally exist with, you know, people that, you know, came generations before us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it didn't, it was a, I, I was an artist for quite a bit when I was, when I was a kid, but it was kind of one of those things that once it became accepted by, by, by family members, I went completely against it and went the other direction to where I didn't want to do it anymore because they expected it of me. So I did the opposite of what they wanted all the time. So that's where I went to music because they definitely thought that would never work. 
So I, I did it just to prove them wrong. Right. Well, dude, that that's a very motivating factor for a lot of kids evolved yeah. in subcultures where it's like, yeah, this whole thing that my parents view is just, you know, weird and fringe. Like I'll, mm-hmm. sh- I'll show them it's worth something. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and, and being a, a middle-class, you know, kid from the Midwest, when I, when I brought my, uh, my, my Hare Krishna friends around and then I told my parents that I was vegetarian and that I'd become a Hare Krishna that was that was the, the the kind of cultural shock to them. They didn't understand. They just heard the bad things about. Well, you're not eating meat anymore because they want to brainwash you. And if you don't eat meat, you can get brainwashed easier because you don't get the hamburger. I, that was kind of their mentality, and it was a funny thing to grow up and have to kind of go to Thanksgiving dinners and stuff like that and be the guy that ate the mashed potatoes and the salad and not anything else. Right, right. How, and how did you, this is something I was going to ask a little bit later, but, um, you know, how did you get into the, the Hare Krishna, you know, consciousness? Because, I mean, you know, in 2017, it sounds, well, not weird, but like that, you know, that was so pervasive within, you know, kind of punk and hardcore around that time. But how did you get introduced to it? Well, uh, Jess, Jess and I had actually, uh, we, we weren't really friends in, in high school. We kind of knew each other. We were acquaintances. And and at one point during during school, he and I kind of you know had a little uh, I guess a little falling out of even being acquaintances, and there was some bad blood there. And then one night there was a local venue venue here in Kansas City, Missouri called the Rumble Box that was a pretty big uh, independent venue back in the '90s. And I remember going there on a whim because another friend of mine wanted to go give Jess some crap basically, and he said. Well, there's this weird Hari Krishna show at the Rumba Box. We need to go check this out so we can go make fun of them. And you know, at the at the time, I was kind of a stoner kid, and I thought, well, sure, let's do that. That'll be fun, right? And then I got there, and I saw what what's funny. It was I saw Sean Ingram with his hardcore band for the first time. That was the first time I ever met Sean. Was at this show in like '92 or '93? Probably about '93, and he was singing for his uh, hardcore band Restraint. And I walk in, and I was just blown away by Sean automatically. He was just so fierce on stage. And I saw Jess there, and Jess came up to me, and he had changed so much because when I had been, you know, acquaintances with him, he had had long black hair and wore combat boots and looked like super metal. And then I see him the next time, and he's kind of he's wearing a dhoti, and he's got a sika, and he's got his Joppa bag on, and everything. And he comes up and acts like we've been friends forever, and kind of started talking to me a little bit, and then. By the end of the show, he was just like, let's go have dinner tomorrow. And we went and uh, went and had dinner, and he kind of introduced me to Krishna consciousness. And so basically a 108 shelter and Sean's hardcore band show at the Roma Box got me into Hare Krishna. Nice, nice. I, I love that because it's such a, um, you know, contextually – it's uh, it's hard to describe what that you know mid '90s movement into you know spiritual waking and in consciousness, mm-hmm. like whether it's you know Christianity or Hare Krishna, like that just existed so much more. Where um, you know, and I'm not being wistful about the time now, but you know, spirituality is definitely spoken about, but it doesn't it didn't seem to have the same um, weight, especially at shows. You know, it's like no, no, no one's speaking and, about that. And, and even even then, even even with uh, at the time with Krishna consciousness and music kind of gaining traction, and the kind of the, the emo punk hardcore scene with with bands like Shelter, with uh, Ray Capo and, and Parcel and all that stuff. Parcel was a, was a, was a huge influence for me when I when I was there. He was so nice when I got to meet him. I mean, this is the first time I ever met him. I was this 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 weird kid from the Midwest, and he was so kind and. Uh, 
and that whole vibe. I mean, before the show even played, they were all in a big circle, and and it sounds kind of hippy dippy or whatever, but they were in a big circle and they were playing a Radunga drum and they were all chanting Hare Krishna and this whole vibe. I mean, you have all these kids that five minutes earlier they were outside smoking and drinking and now you got them in this big circle and these kids that aren't even Hare Krishna are there chanting Hare Krishna in the middle of this club in Kansas City, Missouri. And it was just this, it was, it was, it was moving. It was life changing. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it, I, that's, yeah, that's awesome that you had that experience. Um, and so, you know, as you started to kind of develop your own identity, um, you know, you've always struck me and you've self-described in, you know, previous interviews and stuff like that, where, you know, you were, um, you know, sensibly just like a, a pretty chill guy. Like, you know, you definitely weren't, uh, you know, <laughs> weren't attracted to drama, weren't attracted to conflict. Um, you know, is that, am I kind of describing you or was that? Yeah. And, okay. and, and that's really what it is because. At, at, I mean, I, I never. I mean, I never got the opportunity to tell bandmates and, and people that I met. And I, and I try to do my best to do this, but I would always. They would never knew how important they were to me. And if, if anything, I just wanted to be as humble as I possibly could. And and just, I used to actually keep a notebook in the early casket lottery days, to where I would, I, when I would meet somebody and, and they made an impact on me, I would keep a notebook, a journal that would say. I met this person on this day and then I would kind of read over that and kind of relive these memories. And when I've come back around the next time, they would come up and, and kind of reintroduce themselves. And I'm like, Oh yeah. And I'd shake their hand. Like I knew them and give them a hug. Like I knew them already. And they were so surprised that I would take the time to remember who they were, you know, and it could be six months, a year later that I would see them. And I would still remember who they were because I never thought in a million years that I would have accomplished anything that I had. I mean, what Coalesce accomplished, and the day I picked up a guitar, I never would have thought that would have ended me on tour, on Earache Records, you know, having our songs played on MTV Sports with some, you know, with, with you know, like Ron Allen skateboarding to Coalesce on MTV Sports. I never thought in a million years that would happen. Yeah. Oh, of course. So. Especially, too, because the... Um you know, there was, there was no ambition beyond what was like literally right in front of you. Just like, let's put out a seven inch. Let's, you know, try to get a record yeah. together. Let's do it, go on tour. So there wasn't, you, you couldn't, yeah. ha- you couldn't have a grand vision because that vision didn't exist for anybody. Oh, it did for Jess. Oh, cool. oh Je- Je- okay. Je- okay. Jess, I mean, and, and not in a bad way. I'm not saying right. he wanted to be Guns N' Roses or anything like that. Jet, you know, Sean had always wanted to be, you know, I don't, I don't want to make this sound bad. He wanted to be like a businessman. He had this this focal point. You know, he always thought of the band was always the most important, but he was always thinking of the band as art and how he could show that art. And that's why he would help design record covers and T-shirts and stuff like that. And then there was Jess that was, I want to be Metallica. You know, he, he, he had that in his mind. He was so driven, but he didn't want to be Metallica, Black Album Metallica. He wanted to be Kill Em All in that era where they were like, handing out demos and they were you know underground becoming big he wanted to be that metallica i don't think he ever wanted to be mtv you know metallica he wanted to be the metallica that got to mtv right no that makes sense so. yeah because you you can definitely have a a vision of how this would like to kind of go oh yeah but yeah. yeah but yeah i understand your your point it wasn't like the you know illusions of grandeur no 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 there was, there was never that i mean <laughs> we <laughs> We were getting our, our first tour, you know, we, we got paid $50 a show. And that was if uh, if the promoter decided to be generous enough to, to pay us. You know, there were there were several nights that 
the, the dudes and bloodlet on that first tour were, were 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 saviors and big brothers to us. You know, there, there's so much influence they gave us on that tour to where there were nights that we didn't get paid. And then, you know, Art would come to me and he would he would pass me 25 or 30 bucks on the sly. And then Scott would do the same. And then Charlie would they were always looking out for us because they knew that, you know, we, we were the, the, the little kids. We were the little brothers. And there was a lot of hazing that happened and stuff like that. But they always took care of us. Well, that was like the best part of that first tour everyone on. And it was they were the greatest role models. You know, for me, they were. Yeah. Oh, sure. No, that's yeah. For you, they were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, did you know, were you into just because, you know, you uh, I mean, mentioned your height and most people that are tall are automatically assumed to like, oh, you should probably play basketball or sports or anything like that. Were you, you know, did you try any of that stuff? No, no, I, I never really. I played baseball for a couple summers and, and, and I was pretty good at it. I ended up being on, you know, the kind of weird baseball teams like the shop and go, the local convenience store baseball teams and to where there was only three actual teams in our league. So every year I could always count on coming in third place, no matter what, I'd always be third. But yeah, it was always stuff like that. I never, I had my basketball coach want me to play in school, but it was, I was never interested in it. I was skateboarding at the time and I had weird mohawks and multicolored hair and work poorly colored clothing that was too big for me and stuff like that so i had no interest in, in sports really yeah yeah no it makes sense because it, it, it's just funny but that like it, i think anybody over the you know the height of like 510 is like oh so like you, you were into sports it's like well no i don't yeah. I, I don't have to be like it's not yeah. it's not predestined yeah yeah your height automatically means that you have to be the next shaquille o'neal it doesn't matter so no but yeah, no, I never was. I, I never was. I'm never interested. I didn't like the attitude that came with a lot of those. And, and I became friends with a lot of those, the jocks, I guess you would say. I hate to use that word, but I was friends with a lot of them. And they actually, they, they were really good friends of mine in school, which was a weird, a weird thing for me, not being a, you know, a sports person. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so why did you, cause like you said, you originally were interested in, you know, playing, playing drums and then, you know, how, how did you eventually end up with, with bass as being your, uh, your, your instrument of choice? It kind of seems like there's a, a million guitar players that go around. And I hate to say that cause there was, I started on guitar and I started on guitar in you know, the early nineties during the, the heyday of grunge. So I spent my, my days and afternoons learning, Allison Chain's records front to back with tablature and stuff like that. And, and, uh, I met Jess and they had just lost their bass player around the same time that I kind of met him in the whole Hare Krishna thing. And he's like, you ever play bass? And I was just like, I can, I mean, it's two less strings than I'm using right now. So it shouldn't be too tough. So I kind of always had the, the approach of bass that I had as a guitar player. I approached the bass like I would play a guitar. And and being a, a, a kind of a, a three piece in, in in the in the the sense that there was a guitar, drums, and bass and coalesce, a lot of times you know J- Jess would go crazy on stage and 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 what he was doing would kind of thin out a little bit because he was doing his thing to where I had to to play the bass like you would a guitar because I had to be part of the rhythm section. And while Jess was doing his thing, I had to also be the rhythm guitar a lot of the time. So that's how I approached the bass playing with Coalesce. 
Yeah, no, that makes total. I didn't honestly think about it in those terms, but it makes sense because yeah, Jess was obviously doing so many, um, you know, really intricate, weird, crazy oh, yeah. things. And like, oh, yeah. if, yeah. if, if you weren't there, not saying that, you know, uh, a, a typical bass player wouldn't have been able to, uh, view it as such, but yeah, you really had to be like, no, the song is going to keep on track because of, you know, this rhythm and Jess, you can, you know, clearly do what you need to, but we gotta yeah. make, we gotta yeah. make sure it's moving forward. <laughs> Yes, and, and that, 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 that was my role. And, and early on, I, I s- s- was planted like a tree. I was the most boring thing to watch and coalesce because I was so concentrating on holding that part of it together that I didn't allow myself to kind of feel the music and, and you know, kind of express myself through the music. I was too busy trying to get my parts right. That's basically how I spent most of my, my early days in coalesce was getting my, make sure I got my parts right so got it that makes sense um and then you, you know like as like you said the you know beginnings uh you know were clearly humble like you guys you know were just basically putting one foot in front of the other um when did you like you personally kind of feel that there was attention that was being you know paid to you know coalesce in particular where it was like you know it could be something small whether it was like you know working with eric well working with eric wasn't small but and, and, um, and that's definitely i mean th- that was that was it okay uh, jess had kind of been you know jess and i had watched headbangers ball and every band that he and i liked on headbangers ball the video would end with the text underneath it eric records and and Jess was always of the mindset that that's where I want to be. That's where we need to be. Like he had it in his head that we were going to be on Earache Records. You know, come hell or high water, we were going to be on Earache Records. And he spent you know a year or more just just pummeling their phone line. This is back before cell phones, back before the internet. And this was just some seventeen year old kid calling up Earache every day saying, hey. Did you get my demo? Hey, you gonna listen to my band? Hey, what do you think about my band? You guys gonna sign us? And like he did that, like you know, incessantly for a year. Man, this would not let up. He was just vicious with it. And then one afternoon, I, I got home and my mom was just like, "You got a phone call from New York City? They said they're part of the FBI." And I'm like, "What?" And then I get on the phone and it's it's Lou to Carol S from from uh, Earache, and he's all like, "This is so and so from the FBI," and he's like busting my balls. And then he's got Jess on a two way call. And then Jess just can't hold it together anymore, and he starts chuckling in the background. And then, I, then he introduces himself as Lou, <laughs> and, that, and, that, and that's how that's how I found out. And he was just like, "Well, we're interested in putting out some music for you guys, and we want you to come to New York, and uh, we're going to set you guys up with the tour and all this stuff. And we want your first stop to be New York City." And then that's how it all started. It was just one of those things. In a million years, I would have never thought I'd been on tour. It had kind of been, you know, dis- discussed before. And we'd done a few trips, you know, a couple hours away to, you know, a little bit southern Kansas City, you know, Kansas and all that stuff. But we never thought about going to New York City of all places. But we got that phone call and they messed with me a little bit. And they say, you know, we're uh, we're driving to New York City at the end of our senior years to meet the year eight guys. Right, right. And what was what was your kind of, um, you know, plan in regards to, you know, did you have a idea of like, oh, well, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get this sort of career? And, or was that all something that was just like, well, I just want to see where this music thing goes? Well, you know, that doesn't mean pinning yourself to the idea of making money off living, you know, of playing music. But, you know, where was your head at? Well, I had, I had considered becoming a teacher in school, and, and my, my GPA was high enough that my counselors were all pushing for me to. They, uh, 
um, they, I did pretty well in, you know, social studies and literature and, you know, composition and stuff like that. I was terrible at math, but I was, I was good at all the other aspects of being a student, just terrible at math. And my counselors were just like, you know, we can get you a scholarship to any school you want to go to if you want to pursue this teaching degree. And I'd kind of talked to them, you know, going through high school. But by the time 11th grade hit, coalesce started to kind of happen. And then that started becoming becoming a reality for me. And then so the next time my counselor saw me and he's like, I think I'm going to try this music thing for a while. I don't think I'll get this chance again if I don't. And he was disappointed and, you know, a lot of people were disappointed, but it was something I had to do and I never looked back. Nice. That's cool. And what, what did your dad do for a living? Uh, he, he, he does construction. He's, uh, he used to do cabinet installation and building. Um, Got it. He worked locally as a, as a cabinet guy, I guess cabinet yeah. installer is what he was. Sure. sure. So yeah, yeah. We, we've all been in, in, in carpentry or construction at one point. That's, that's where most of my family, uh, is is in the construction field because the money was so much better than pushing pencils and working retail. So we, we pretty much all went there. And that, that was probably a big disappointment too. My dad was pretty bummed when I told him I was going into construction because he never wanted that for me. He would have preferred me to be a teacher. Right. So, yeah. <laughs> and what, uh, what, what would you have theoretically taught in his eyes? Anything? Um, I, I probably would have just been a, a basic run-of-the-mill grade school teacher. Okay. I mean, uh, it, it's, it took me years and years and years, you know, to finally convince myself to have children. But I always liked kids. I mean, kids were so awesome to see them experience the world through a fresh set of eyes. Mm-hmm. That was. I wanted to see them discover things, and I wanted to help them discover things. And that, that's why I always thought about like elementary education and stuff like that because I wanted to be there for those years of discovery. And I wanted to be the teacher that they would look back on finally and say, you know, Mr. Hilt was this great teacher and he helped guide me on my path to what I would become as an adult. I always kind of wanted that type of thing. Right. That makes sense. Um, And did you, uh, you know, as you started to, you know, tour a bit more and experience all that sort of stuff, did you immediately like touring and take to that? Or was that a lifestyle that you had to grow accustomed to? I had to go accustomed to it. Uh, my first tour, the farthest out of Kansas City I'd been was Wichita, Kansas. You know, I never went anywhere that far in my life. So for me to go from never having been out of Kansas to driving 27 hours to New York to Manhattan and then getting out of a van there, that, that was that was a, a culture shock for me. You know, we pull up into New York City and we're all excited and Jess is hanging out the door screaming, I love New York. And the first thing that happens is the guy drives by and says, go back to Kansas City, motherfuckers. And that's, he's like, <laughs> yes, I'm here. We've arrived. And he got super excited. It, it didn't deter him at all, man. He was so excited when that happened. He's like, yes, this is New York. And then we were there. That was it. Right. So, didn't matter. Didn't matter. <laughs> but yeah, it was tough at first. It was tough. I mean, I was super homesick and it seemed like the moment I kind of got comfortable in, in my in my skin on the road, some weird obstruction would happen and then send me flying right back down to the homesick road again. And I spent most of the tour on this like yo-yo to where it's like, I'm totally enjoying this. I hate this. I totally enjoy this. I hate this. That, that was kind of my attitude that first tour. I look back on it fondly now and wish that I had been a little more stable in my mental state during that, that time. So I could have enjoyed every aspect and it could have always been, that I'm so glad to be here and not just kind of homesickness. 
But having never been out of Kansas City, I mean, it's to be expected for me to be homesick, I guess. Hey, pardon the interruption, but come on. I have to tell you, I have to tell you, if you are not sleeping on a Casper, you are doing yourself and your body an injustice. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to absolutely revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. So most people, they've probably heard me talk about Casper already, but did you know they have three models? They have the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, and their mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. I feel like a math problem. When I lay down on it, it cradles me beautifully. Not to mention, their breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. And it's delivered to your door in a small, seriously, how do they do that size box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. The best part is that you can be sure of your purchase with a Casper 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend a third of your life sleeping, so why not make it comfortable? I love Casper so damn much. I got the Casper pillows now. I have my mattress in my new house. I sleep on it. It is just, oh my gosh. I can't I can't say enough positive things about it. It's the best. I actually had a conversation at a birthday party this past weekend with a person who's being like, oh yeah, I'm, uh, I'm interested in some mattresses. I'm like, yo, real talk, do this immediately, okay? And what's even better is I am going to give you $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash words and using words at the checkout. So please start sleeping ahead of the curve. Use my promo code casper.com slash words, offer code words for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions, of course, apply, but I ride hard for Casper. Your life will be so much better when you're sleeping on one. Please, Casper's the best. Now, on with the show. It, it is interesting because I, I do think that people fall into one of two categories when it comes to touring. Like, you know, one, the person who, you know, can deal with that sort of, you know, chaos and is able to be like, oh, yeah, that that's fine. Like, you know, I'll figure it out. And then there's the other person who's like, yeah, I like playing in bands and I like creating music and I like playing shows, but then devoid of a support system beyond, you know, just the three or four other human beings traveling in this van, you know, it feels yeah, yeah. It, it feels pretty lonely pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and, and Casket Lottery was a, was, a, was a different animal in that aspect than, than Coalesce. Uh, Sean and I definitely had the most in common in Coalesce, so he and I would always end up at a record store, always end up at a comic book store, because we were just total geeks. So he and I got it. Uh, Jess was was a, a lot more academic than I was, so while we were really good friends we didn't connect on the same level that Sean and I did. And then at the time, Jim Red and I, we, we only connected because of the music. It, it was, it was kind of like a, a, it wasn't volatile, but it was kind of, we worked together only for the music. But most of the time, you know, I would spend most of my time hanging out with Sean because we were just nerdy kids that like nerdy stuff. And that's who I got along with. So sure. Sure. Makes sense. Um, and did you, uh, you know, how active were you in the sort of business aspect of the band? Was that something that you cared particularly about and you were trying to contribute? Or was that something where it's like, well, other other people are handing that and I don't really care for that? Yeah, zero. I had, I okay. had zero. <laughs> I had zero. Honestly, and, and it was one of those things that, you know, Sean was so driven as a businessman and he would, he, I don't know if he liked it or he just wanted to take on that responsibility, but he, he kind of did. He took on the responsibility of ensuring that the shows were booked and that we got paid for the shows and that merchandise was made and stuff like that. And he, he was, he was the voice of the band. 
And and that that was I, I preferred it that way because I just wanted to show up and play, and Jess just wanted to to show up and play. So it, it was definitely on Sean to be the the businessman of, of Coalette, the the front man, so to speak. So sure makes sense. Um, and the uh, you know, like a, as you started to you know get even more and more active with Coalesce, and then um, you know things. Coalesce was such an interesting piece where, you know, there's always stops and starts and, you know, you broke up or you didn't break up and you came back for another record. And, um, you know, did it, uh, I presume there were aspects of it where you felt, um, you know, frustrated or, uh, you know, uh, other negative emotions towards it. Um, you know, how, how did you kind of deal with that sort of, you know, instability of something that you were kind of centering your life around? Um, well, as you know, by by the time all the kind of started falling apart, I mean, we did the tour in 95 and we got back from that tour. And it's, it's a pretty well-documented story. It's been told a million times about how we got back and due to tension in the band between the drummer and Sean, we ended up trying out a new singer. And the new singer at the time ended up being James DeWeese from the Get Up Kids and Reggie and the Full Effect. He came out to try out to be singer for Coalesce. And basically he tried out, Sean showed up, everything fell apart, we split. And then Jess was in the process of getting married uh, around you know the summer of, of 96. And, and Sean came to me and said, we've been invited to Jess's wedding at the Hare Krishna Temple in St. Louis. So we went up there and, and Sean and I were just like, we're going to get the band back together. We're going to get the band back together. So it was me, Sean, and Jim Redd, the original drummer at Coalesce. We get up there, and Jess had kind of been talking to Sean and I about it over the phone, and we hadn't really talked to Jim about it. And then we get there, and we get this big group hug, and 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 Jess is like, "Is the band back together again?" And Sean and I are like, "Yeah." And then Jim's like, "I'm out." And that was, was like, "Okay, square one. Let's what are we gonna do now?" So that's how that ended. That 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 kind of iteration of the original Coalesce lineup ended in St. Louis with the decision that Jim wanted to go to college, and the rest of us wanted to pursue Coalesce. So what ended up happening in that little that that thing there is that Jess said we need to find a drummer. So I brought in one guy that didn't work out very well, and then James is a music prodigy, and he had taught the drummer in his kind of helmet style band in, in Liberty, Missouri, called uh, Mailbox to play drums a little bit. He was kind of teaching them and stuff like that, and so he knew how to play. And I was just like, well, crap, James Deweese knows how to play. And he had all the early Coalesce stuff, and I'd given him copies of the early Coalesce demos on stuff that would have eventually become um, later material uh, that would end up becoming like uh, parts of Give Them Rope and, and stuff like that. Um, and I gave those to him, and he, sh- he shows up, and Sean, we practice at Sean's house with James, and he shows up, and he walks in, and Jess is just ready to not give him a chance because he realizes who it is. He's like, isn't this the guy we try to replace Sean with? And I kind of laugh, and I was like, just, just hear me out, hear me out. He's <laughs> right. a good drummer, just hear me out. And Jess just wasn't going to have it. He basically said, you get one shot. If you mess this up, you're gone. And he literally, that's the attitude he had. He's like, if you mess this up, I'm going to throw the hardest song we know at you. And, and James is like, what do you want to play? And then he played a song off of uh, what would become Give Them Rope, one that we had only barely finished writing with, with Jim. And he played it flawlessly. And he's the only other person that ever heard those songs outside of the band. So for him to know the songs that we hadn't even ever played out live and knew them from front to back, 
Jess just fell on the ground and started giggling like a little kid. And it was this, like, the greatest experience. My heart started pumping. The blood started racing. And then they started going through all the Coalesce set. He knew all the Coalesce songs from front to back. And Sean shows up at his house like, hey, man, how'd you get Jim Red back? I was like, I didn't. Uh, please don't be mad at me. And he walks downstairs and he sees Jim Red behind the drum set. or uh, He sees uh, James Weiss behind the drum set. And he's like, he plays pretty good. And then walks back upstairs and then next thing you know, James is in the band. That's how that, that's how that happened. Right. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> so, but yeah, there, there was always, there was always tension. There was, there, there was so many songs and, and so many ideas that came from Coalesce that, that were written about and written by Jess. I mean, he was such an extreme person. And once he became devoted to something, he was just wholly devoted to this thing. And it, and it kind of, if you weren't used to that, it could rub you the wrong way. It could cause weird tension, but it was just who he was. I mean, he was just, just a scholar. And if he found something he wanted to learn about and be devoted to, there was no stopping that guy. So, and that's what it was. A lot of tension came from that because once he found his, his niche, he, he didn't care what happened around that niche. As long as he learned everything and consumed everything for that, everything else was just kind of secondary and that's just the way it kind of was. So that, that kind of tension was there. And then Sean being so focused on the band and everything like that and wanting to make it a name and wanting to make it big and stuff like that, you know, that caused tension because there was always this kind of cloud over our heads that we really had to do this. And, and it was just weird, you know, yeah. typical band stuff. It's just you hear about that a million times from every band where they have that. We're going to make it. We're not going to make it. We got the artist guitar player and then we got the, the business band singer and. And I don't want to put that in a bad light. Don't I don't want to say businessman singer. It's just yeah, but it. well, he. I mean, there are people that you yeah. know need to be focused on that sort of aspect because yep. it's like, yeah, well, yes, we, we need sure. we need money to put in the gas tank. We need money in order to merge. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so the, you know, kind of switching gears with the you know the casket lottery, like you know that you guys really seemed to not only be extremely comfortable with each other in regards to, you know, writing music and performing live. And like, you know, it seemed like you guys were a well-oiled machine from the fact that, you know, you could do your cool tours that, you know, you and Appleseed cast could go out and play for, you know, a hundred, 150 people. And like, it just seemed like a very, I guess, uh, you know, healthy balance where it wasn't like, okay, we're going to explode and be the next, you know, big thing or whatever. But it just seemed kind of this gradual climb, um, you know, like not huge leaps in popularity, but just like, you know, progressively got, you know, more and more each time through uh, a city. Like, am I, am, do, you, do you remember it that way or was it just yeah, kind of always and, a grind? And it really was. You, you brought up Seth Brown earlier. And I remember we played a Halloween show and I believe it was Halloween 98. We had played our first show in July of 98. It's actually written in a song that we wrote earlier, you know, Independence Day 98. Uh, it was written into a song. Well, we, we played a few shows and we kind of been playing basement shows and kind of smaller shows. And, and come October, we had kind of talked to Dan Askew about putting a record out on Second Nature, the casket lottery. And, and he was kind of hesitant because he wanted to see where this thing was going and... Um, Seth Brown had flown out from from California, and he had you know he had put out the he had helped fund and put out that first EP. Um, he came out, and he he was actually coming out to offer us a recording contract as much as you would get from a you know an independent label and stuff like that. He wanted to put out a record, 
and it was Halloween in 98, and he, and he shows up dressed as a vampire, and Nathan dressed as a vampire, and they were hipster vampires. And we went to lunch, or we went to dinner with Seth, and we was like, we want to let you know, because you are a good friend of ours, that this is Cassia Lottery's last show. And that was our plan. Uh-huh. Halloween 98 was going to be Casket Lottery's last show. So we went out there and played a show like it was going to be the last show we ever played together. Um, we kind of become disillusioned with it because we'd seen bands around us like the, the Get Up Kids and stuff like that that were just, you know, meteoric in their rise. I mean, they just, they just had that thing. And they become so big and we kind of, kind of become disillusioned that it would never happen for us. So we were ready just to hang it up because we, we didn't have record label interests and stuff like that. Um, so Seth really didn't say anything. He didn't say that he wanted to put out a record because he thought he was there to see our last show. Uh, we played that show that night, and at the end of the set, Dan Askew came up to Nate and I and gave us a hug, and he's like, all right, you guys win. We're going to put a record out. Got it, got and, it. And he put us on second nature. So Seth was like, I was here to offer you a record, and then Dan swoops in and... <laughs> And <laughs> sneak, sneak, sneaks it away from him. That's funny. Yeah, yeah. And it was it was one of those things that we were so surprised. But we had already started recording with uh, with Seth to put out what would become Dot Dot, um, and that recording session just went horribly. Um, we ended up recording in a studio that the studio the train that that name of the studio was Trainwreck, and funny enough that a train crashed directly behind it caused the river that area to flood during a real bad rainstorm flooded the entire studio losing the entire record while we recorded and then we ended up having to re-record everything that we recorded at the prior studio at another studio and it came out so bad that dan askey was finally just like i'll pay to put that record out too so he basically paid to record what became dot dot for status records because the recording sessions went so bad that he finally just kick the money and to make sure it was done right by Ed Rose, who had done all the coal that stuff. Got it. Got it. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it was, there was a time that casket lottery would have never made it past their first year. That was actually where we were at that point. We just become disillusioned. Thought it was, we thought it was just done. So yeah. that's what we did. We yeah. ended up talking about quitting that October. And then next thing you know, we've got, we put out dot dot. And then as soon as we're done with dot dot, we go right in for, uh, choose bronze by that point we'd already writ- written what mostly what became choose bronze during the process of writing dot dot and then by the time we were done with choose bronze we had already written a good portion of what was going to go into moving mountains already so it was real prolific in that first year once we realized that we had someone that was going to put this music out and someone would finally hear it and that was that was it that's where it went right yeah and it's interesting too i didn't i didn't reflect on the fact that you know most of the time because that that was still of the age in which um, you know you released music when you had enough music written, you know, like oh, yeah, it, yeah, it, yeah. It, it wasn't a uh, mechanic of uh, or a mechanism of like, oh well, we got to release a record because we're part of the yeah. eighteen month cycle or whatever. Yeah, yeah that's what I was going to say. We're part of the recording cycle. It's time to just get back out there. We've toured for eighteen months. It's time to put another record out because that's what's expected. No, with with Casket Lottery and the, and the weird thing about Midwest music and Midwest bands is that. There was never that cycle. If they had music, it was coming out. If they wrote three songs, it was an EP. If they wrote four songs, it was an extended, you know, a, a little bit longer EP. You know, and, and they just—that's how they recorded. It was just everyone was so prolific here in the Midwest that you just put out whatever was done and ready to be recorded. That's pretty much how it ended up being with Casket Lottery. We were 
always find, trying to find a place to slot ourselves into a split, you know, a split record with somebody, re- release an EP, get on some compilation. We were always looking for stuff like that. Right, right, yeah. You're just like we got, we got songs flowing. We might as well put oh, yeah. them, yeah. <laughs> and at the time, we were. I, I'd never in a million years thought that I would be that prolific as a musician because it was never like that for me and, and coalesce. Uh, like I said, I'm not lying when I say that Jess was the mastermind, and I just I spent my time just keeping up with Jess. Right. He he was the mastermind behind that whole thing, and 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 he he's one of the the best musicians I've ever played with. And he's so inspiring. And, and to this day, when I play and I write something, I, I think in the back of my head, would Jet would just like this? You know, I still think that to this day. And here I am, you know, 24 years later, still thinking, would just like this? And, right. and that's just the way it is. I mean, he had that impact on me as a musician. He made me a better musician. Right. Just like Nathan Alice and Nathan Richardson, man, they made me way better than I ever thought I'd be playing bass you know they made me feel like i could do anything and i owe so much to them as a musician that i know ne- i'm like i said i have never taken a lesson i'm not a, a theory musician but they made me feel like i knew what i was doing right right yeah. right um l- last couple of things i wanted to hit before i let you go was the um you know as you were kind of you know uh, touring coming home working a job and all that sort of stuff like how were you did you feel like you were successful at kind of balancing you know the the home life versus the you know on the road being creative life or was that just kind of difficult to manage i love the creative life part of it the personal life part i was terrible at i I just had you know for me i i I can never let myself enjoy anything because i always had this this constant sense of guilt because, you know, I was leaving someone at home. And even though I know that, you know, it was something I love to do and it's, it's where I wanted to be, there was always this little voice in the back of my head saying, you know, someone was sitting at home waiting for you to call. So that was always kind of what soured a lot of that for me and made some of the, the, the middle tours for Cascalati a little tougher for me. But, you know, but unfortunately, that was just how it was for me. Mm-hmm. I loved being out there and I don't think I could ever express how much I love being out there. Uh, to the people that I was out there with, because it always seemed like I always they could always sense that I wasn't always one hundred percent there. Right, right, yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's hard, especially when you have things that you understand are more, you know, not more important, but are just as important as what you're experiencing on the road. And it's just like, you know, they, those are, yeah, it's like you want to you want to have relationships besides, you know, the the people you're on tour with at that particular moment. Yeah, but it, they they were they were my best friends, and they're still my best friends. You know, uh, you know, I I was a terrible big brother because I was kind of an absentee big brother because I had a family only in the regards that I had a brother and you know the, the makeup of a family, but I was always somewhere else in my head, to where I always wanted to be writing music and being with these people instead of the people that you know were blood relation. I would rather be on the road with these guys than than, than be home. So. You know, Nathan and those guys were my brothers, you know, they felt like my brothers. So nice. Yeah, yeah, totally. makes sense. Um, and so then, you know, did you just because it, this may seem like a, you know, a silly question, just because, um, you know, from what I know about you, the, I, I don't think this was a, a struggle. But, you know, a lot of people, as they start to wind down their touring life um, and start to realize that, like, you know, the band performance aspect 
is not going to be as prevalent in their life. Um, was that a struggle for you being like, Oh, you know, I was, I was known as Stacy from coalesce or Stacy from the casket lottery. And like, you know, that, that isn't as pervasive once you start to, you know, not be out there. Was that a difficult struggle kind of, you know, I guess going out of that lifestyle? Well, it's, it's, it is to even this day. I, I've had this conversation with my wife of, uh, of 14 years, you know, sometimes I'll still have this conversation with her where I'm just like, I still don't know who, don't know who I am mm-hmm. without the Cassia lottery, without coalesce. You know, I, it, it was so much a part of my life that I was never able to separate it. So even when I'm doing my day job, it's autopilot 100%. I'm, my, my head is always in California. My head is always somewhere else seeing the people that I want to be with and be with, you know, on the road. And I, we, we played a, what would, what was then the start of our indefinite hiatus in 2004, we did uh, what well, was our last West Coast tour after I had just recently gotten married. And then I got home and I remember playing the show and we got in the car and my, my best friend told me he was proud of me because he knew that that was, uh, that was likely going to be the last Casca Lottery show. And mm-hmm. he knew how much it meant to me. And he, and he told me that and I just, I broke down. I'm, I'm breaking down now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I I broke down when he when he said that because I realized that that part of my life would be over how I how it was then. Sure. And yeah, it it, it wrecks me to this day. It's just still it still wrecks me. Yeah. So, no. No. Yeah. I, I, but I appreciate yeah. I appreciate you being that honest because I, I definitely think that there is a. Uh, Especially too, when you, you find you know that most people reference you for you know one particular thing that you did at a young age or whatever, um, yeah, yeah, and then you start to realize it's just like, well, like yeah, there's, but you know, like I, I'm not worth less as a human being just because I I am I'm not playing this aggressive music anymore or whatever. Um, but yeah, no, I, I understand the struggle behind that. Yeah, and it, it, it's 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 real. <laughs> it, it is so. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. I, I love it, and you know, and I, I've slowly started getting back into playing music again. I've been doing a lot more of it lately, and hopefully, I'll have some some cool things to announce very soon. So nice, yeah. Well, that's yeah. good, yeah. Because I mean, the, the the duality that you can live in, where it's like, yeah, you know, you're 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 doing a job, you know, you're being a dad, you know, you're being a husband, and all these things. Like the you don't the pressure of existing in a band structure that, you know, oh, I'm going to be gone six months out of the year. It's just like, that doesn't, yeah. that doesn't need to exist. You know, you can be creative on your own terms. Yeah. And we, and we never, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, Cassie Lottery never had that. While we toured a lot, we only tried the let's tour for a two month block one time. And we realized we're not the, the extended tour guys. We'll go out for a couple of weeks because that's about <laughs> our right. toleration is a, a few weeks on each coast. You know, we'll go out for two weeks on one, come home for two weeks, go out for two. And we need the, the downtime. We are not the, the hardcore road dogs or anything like that. Right. Right. For sure. Um, and, and the last thing was the, um, you know, since you were, you know, essentially raised within, you know, the punk and hardcore sort of DIY mentality scene, um, you know, how, how does that kind of, uh, affect your, you know, whether it's like your day-to-day life in regards to, you know, working with people who don't have any context for that, you know, I, I presume you feel a pretty profound impact from that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cer- certainly. And, 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 it, even if my, with my day job, it kind of has bled over into my day job to where when you're in that scene, if things aren't getting done, you got to do it for yourself. So it, it kind of makes me that person in my job too, to where, 
if I see something not getting done, I do it because it won't get done otherwise. So that that that's definitely bled over into my 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 real life, if you will say. But that that's bled over for sure, and that's kind of my my ethic is that if I have to, if it has to get done, I'll do it myself. Otherwise it'll never get done type attitude. Right. It's true. Like I, you definitely see people that have the, um, you know, not, not on my desk mentality where it's just like, Oh yeah. yeah." And like, yes, of course there's certain uh, instances in which like, Oh yeah, you like, you're not the CEO. So you shouldn't decide to spend a million dollars on this. Like, yeah, of course like that makes sense. But you know, yeah, yeah. If it's a matter of just like, oh yeah, like oh, I got to put this over here. Oh sure, no problem, I can do that. It's like, oh no, that's not my job. It's like, what? What does that mean? <laughs> yeah, and, and and there's a, I see a lot of that in my day to day work. Is that's not my job, right? So <laughs> totally, and it, it ends up becoming my job. So <laughs> right for sure. You're like, well, I don't know how to do this, but I can probably accomplish it. And it'll yeah, be done. and that's that's what I have to do. It's like it's like it may not be right, it may not be pretty, but it, it'll get done. Right. So <laughs> no, that's awesome. Well, Stacy, thank you so much for hanging out, dude. This has been fun. I hope you enjoyed it uh, as much as I did. Oh, I did. I did. I appreciate everything, man. I, thanks for reaching out, and, and I'm glad you actually answered my, my post on the Facebook page. So. We're, we're, <laughs> the, the internet works in magic ways, right? Oh, it does. It does. Where were we before it? <laughs> exactly. Re- printing out MapQuest directions and getting completely lost. <laughs> Even with MapQuest directions, we were still lost. Exactly. <laughs> It's so weird. I've been doing this for so long. And sometimes when I'm talking into the microphone, either if I'm recording a conversation, like it feels like such a part of my life. It feels like breathing, you know? And I often like don't reflect on it until someone asks me a question about the podcast or like, hey, what upcoming guests you got? And I often feel I'm just like, oh yeah, that's right. I I do that. (laughs) It just, and I I don't want to make it seem like I'm on like autopilot because I'm definitely not. But I, I just, I can't believe this has been going as long as it has. And it's awesome. It's so much fun. So thank you for those of you listening. And thank you, Stacy, for coming on the show. And what do I have next week? I have a conversation I didn't think I was going to be having anytime soon with a member of a band that I enjoy greatly that goes often overlooked, which makes me sad. But John Franco, he sang and played guitar for a band called Buy a Thread, which if you haven't listened to Buy a Thread, Holy crap, you are doing your ears a disservice. They were a band that uh, yeah, existed in the late 90s, early 2000s, put out a couple records on Revelation Records, and are just just such a good band. Like If you like Quicksand, if you like all that post-hardcore stuff, you will lap up by a thread. And uh, yeah, I just I put out the call on Facebook, and uh, a friend of mine, shout out to Rich Hall, thank you very much, Rich, uh, he put me in touch with John, and the conversation got scheduled in like less than 12 hours. It was spectacular, so... That's what we got next week. And then uh, after that, I'm going to have some fun stuff. I'm going to have a buried treasure about uh, New Jersey bands that are often overlooked. And uh, I'm going to have a revisiting of uh, best of 2007 records with my friends Joey and Jeremy. Going to have a bunch of fun stuff. So, uh, yeah, look forward to that. And, um, yeah, please have a good rest of the day with whatever it is that you're doing. And please, like I always encourage you, to be safe. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.